I've got a thing on. Oh, it is good to be here, man. I chatted to Tim, I don't know when, it feels like 1936. Um, it was about then, wasn't it? And uh, we got it in the diary, and we're here, and, it, and it's just wonderful to be with you. And I love how organized you are as well. You get that real sense of a well-oiled machine, you know? Um, and now you've got a Baptist in your mix as well. You know, I feel like a lion in a room full of Daniels. I'm only joking. It's really good to be here. So, I'm, <laughs> um, I'm going to share a story with you, just to start, okay? It starts like this. As they fled the only home that they'd ever known, their fears grew with each step. And with only the clothes on their back and a little more than a scrap of hope, their world had become a dangerous and a strange place. What short-lived happiness as a married couple was a distant memory. And now, this pair of refugees needed all their energy for survival on the run. And ahead of them lay hostilities that they could barely imagine. Now, like so many migrants, nights were spent in makeshift shelters, a daily struggle for food and a potential for disaster were at every turn. And it became part of their daily lives. And this went on For years, their children were born amid violence, fear and corruption. And although they found a safe haven for a number of years, one of their sons would be murdered and another would disappear. This family's experience was far from the only tragedy at the time. There were mass drownings, people trafficking and attacks that wiped out entire cities. So much devastation and so little reason for it. The world watched on as news of their plight spread. Abandoned babies, bereaved women, distraught men, children who were soldiers and public executions, and the horror showed no sign of letting up. And at one border crossing, some of the family's distant relations fled for their lives, the parents clutching hard to their little boy, while behind them, the toddlers were killed in their sleep. Now, this particular lad would escape death at this time as a child, but it would catch up with him as a young adult, and images from his brutal execution at the hands of a military regime would go viral around the world. Surely, there was no hope now, as another couple packed up their things to leave the city. Now, this can sound like a tragic tale emerging from the ashes, maybe, of modern-day Syria or Afghanistan as civil war and terrorists wreak havoc and misery. But this, this isn't that story. In fact, this story could be even more disturbing somehow. And it's from a book that's been banned in more countries than in any other. It's called The Bible, and it's the story of Jesus' birth. Essentially, it is the Christmas story. So when we read this, what odds do we give this little boy? What is his worth? What outcomes would he have in our world? But you know, so many children start off in incredibly difficult situations, just as Jesus did. But you know, it doesn't only apply to refugees. At the end of last year, the Department of Education released the annual figures for England that showed a need of just over 2,000 children in care. 
and the Fostering Network, which is a charity dedicated to the um, a raising awareness and supporting carers, estimated that a further 7,000 new foster families were needed in the following year. And over 2,000 children inside that situation were awaiting adop- adoption, but they hadn't been matched with anyone yet. And a third of those children, of the 2,000, had been waiting 18 months or more to hear if they would have a family. In the same month, a report was released by Action for Children stating that 85% of adults in the UK were not interested in fostering in the UK. Now, I don't know what those numbers do to you. Right, I'm going to just say this now. I'm a bit of a wuss, right? So I might start booing at any point. But these numbers, they really deeply affect me. Um, Because I'm thinking about children and young people who have been ripped from a really difficult place and they're in a complete unknown. But before I get into that, I want to share a little bit about me and my life. Now, myself, my wife, my two birth kids started fostering around eight, nine years ago. And after a few months of waiting, our first foster daughter came into our home. Now, we started fostering for a couple of reasons. Firstly, I was doing a lot of youth work already, and I had this real sense that I should be serving the more vulnerable in our society. Secondly, my wife is a therapist, um, and she works with traumatized kids who have been adopted and fostered, and she never wanted to tell people to do things that she didn't understand herself. Does that make sense? Um, Because you have to be empathic with this stuff. But thirdly, and I believe this is, and it was the biggest reason for us as believers and as Christians, was that I think God was telling us to do it. Um, You know, in James 1.27 it says this, very simply, religion, that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless, is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress. Now, we don't necessarily have orphans like you would think about them in our country, But as I said at the beginning, we don't actually have to look far to see that there are literally thousands of children who don't have a mum, a dad, or a family that love them, or who who can look after them. Now, when Lisa arrived, she was avoidant. She was clearly had experienced trauma in her life, and she was frightened at the prospect of living with another family. Now, Lisa is, and I'm going to say this up front, still the most rewarding and difficult relationship that I've ever had. And she's probably the most difficult and rewarding experience that I've ever had as well. But because of her early experiences, she had forged a worldview, basically of herself, that she was not worth loving. She did not believe that she was worth loving. And as we journeyed and we tried to convince her otherwise, she would do everything in her power to convince us that it wasn't true. You see, to her, it was too painful to trust adults again. It was too difficult to allow herself to be vulnerable again. Essentially, you are surrounded by love, but you will not accept it as you don't trust or want it. Her worldview, you see, was set. Such was her trauma that sometimes we would even go to the cinema 
and she would sit with her head in her lap because she couldn't clearly see where the exits were so she could escape. That was life for Lisa. And she would arrive at school an hour early so she could clock everyone going in and out to make sure she knew exactly what was going on. And best of all, she would never tell you what was going on for her because that meant giving away control. And that, in her experience, mm, that never worked out. So that was the space that she lived in. And we were her fourth foster placement. And, you know, we were together for over three and a half years. And over that time, our family and our church, they loved her through highs and lows. And we learned, really, what it was to choose love rather than just feel it. And through all this time, she gave a little vulnerability and she would allow us to be the child that she needed to be again. And she would regress to a place that she'd been robbed of. Essentially, she was becoming the child who she could never be before. It was like somehow she was reclaiming those early years, you know? But before, she had to survive with her birth family. And now she got to reclaim it. And within a short space of time, of course, what would happen is she would remember that we were adults when she was being a little bit vulnerable, and then she'd convince herself that we were going to give up on her because that's what adults do. And it was a cycle that she went through, going backwards and forwards. And as I said, though, inside these times, we were allowed into forging a new worldview for her. Something new was happening inside of her. I remember one day I was on a fostering course and uh, the, foster, the, the person doing the training came and they said, we want you to do some homework. We want you to go to someone and say, what do you value in your relationship with me? I guarantee that you've never asked that of any, anyone that you know. So I was like, okay. So I went to my birth son, Noah, and I said, Noah, what do you value in your relationship with me? He said, Dad... Have you been on a course? <laughs> He's quite bright. It's like, why are you talking weird? <laughs> so I went to Lisa and I said, Lisa, um, well, I, got, I got this thing. Um, what do you value in your relationship with me? Now, she never, uh, she never spoke stuff. You know, she would write it down, then she'd push it underneath your door. That's how she did it. And so this, uh, this is what she wrote to me. And I know a lot of you, actually most of you are teenagers. I know some of you are. So you might not read teenage, but I will decipher this for you. Go, go through it. She said this, one, you're there if I ever worry about something. You're there to help. Two, you look out for me. Three, I can trust you with a lot of stuff. Four, oh, you can love me when I'm really angry. And five, you give me good quality food that I love. (laughs) Now, that little list, um, that might not mean a lot to you. But as you can see, I can't, and I don't know how many times I've seen that slide, but it still fills me with incredible emotion. You see, the young lady I'm talking about, well, she comes from a place where dissociation and neglect were her life. And in this set of answers, she was telling me about all the things that I take for granted in my day-to-day relationships with my kids. And she was telling me about how she really felt about me and about my home. You see, for her, being loved when she was angry 
That was new. Before she would get beaten for that. Before she didn't know if she had anyone looking out for her. So she had to go it alone. Before she didn't know if a meal was coming or not. And so she was telling us how special that was. These simple things that we can so often take for granted are not everybody's story. They are not everybody's story. And I was learning what it meant to look after the orphan. I was learning what it meant to love at a whole other level. I was learning about the kind of love that Jesus spoke about in the Bible. A love that was given when you're not given much or anything back necessarily, but you are called to do it anyway. Called to do it anyway. But it wasn't just us. There were people in our church who were journeying with her as well. They invested in her. They had her for a few hours when we were on our knees or when she just couldn't stand us anymore. And they loved her too, you know? They saw who she could be and what she was always meant to be. It's always quite heavy at this stage, so I'm going to tell you my favourite joke of all time. So, a young man received a parrot as a gift. Parrot, unfortunately, had an incredibly bad attitude and an even worse vocabulary. Every word out of this bird's mouth was rude, it was obnoxious, and it was laced with profanity. Now, John tried and tried to change the bird's attitude by consistently saying only polite words, played soft music, anything else he could think of to clean up the bird's vocabulary. Finally, John was fed up and he yelled at the parrot, and the parrot yelled back at him. John shook the parrot, and the parrot got angrier and even ruder. And John, in desperation, threw up his hands, he grabbed the bird, and he put him in the freezer. For a few minutes, the parrot squawked, kicked, screamed, and then suddenly there was total quiet. Fearing that he'd heard the parrot, John opened the door to the freezer. The parrot calmly stepped out onto John's outstretched arms. He says, I believe I may have offended you with my rude language and my actions. I'm sincerely remorseful for my inappropriate transgressions. I fully intend to do everything I can to correct my rude and unforgivable behaviour. Now, John was stunned at the change in this bird's attitude. But as he was about to ask the parrot why such a dramatic change in its behaviour had come about, the bird spoke up very softly and said, may I ask what the turkey did? <laughs> you can have that, if you're right. <laughs> but you know, unfortunately... Um, People aren't the same as birds in our joke, are they? Um, And often for kids in care, seeing a precipice right in front of them doesn't stop them jumping if they believe that they're worthless. And after three and a half years, Lisa had to leave our care due to being too violent. And it broke our hearts, you know? What what did it mean? Were we ever going to see her again? We felt like we kind of lost a daughter and our kids... I'd lost a sister, you know. Our church had lost one of its youth. And it occurred to me that we would never have made it this far if it wasn't for our church. 
We would never have made it that far alone. And we wouldn't have been able to do fostering if it wasn't for them. But still, we had this incredible loss. So after six months, I was stood in church, and I was chatting to a mate. And um, as I was chatting, I felt these two little arms grab me from behind, and there she was. She'd bounced around a few homes, and she'd finally landed in another one, which was a little bit more stable. And she requested to go to church. Our church. And do you know what? I don't think she missed a Sunday after that. And in September last year, we had the privilege of her speaking from the front. Well, ah, this is being recorded, it's terrible, isn't it? We heard her speaking from the front about how much the Lord had helped her and shown her what love is, about how we as a family had had and do love her, and about how the church had never given up on her regardless of what she thought about herself. And she was baptised that morning. Mm. So here's my point, right? What if churches and people in our networks could be known for making sure that there are no kids in Baines waiting for a loving home? And what if you could be part of that somehow? whether it could be you taking in a kid at some some point yourself or helping others to do so. But here's the thing. What if your legacy is one where a young person looks at you and says that it was your love and care that changed everything for them? What if the network of people around you could support you and a young person in your care so that they could relearn what love really looks like again? One where they don't have to feel scared of domestic violence anymore, one where they can slowly learn that there will be a meal waiting for them rather than having to find it themselves, one where they can learn that they are worth loving and deserve a fair shot at life. And I think God is really clear about this stuff. It says in Matthew 18:5, whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. You see, the church to Lisa was never about singing or the sermon. It was about the people in it. It was about feeling safe, and it was about feeling loved, even when she rejected it. She actually helped me understand what a good church was. You know, I asked my wife, what is the number one cause of breakdowns in fostering and adoption placements? And she said, oh, love, that's really easy to answer. It's nearly always the network around that carer or that family that can't or won't help. So what better environment then? than a church that is committed to support and to love and to care and has an absolute drive in its belly to help a vulnerable young person believe that they have unending value. I, um, at the end of 2017, I started working for a charity called Home for Good in the Baines area. The charity's got a really simple mandate, right? You might have come across them. And that is that we are wanting to find a home for every child in the UK that needs one. Now, that sounds like a tall order, right? But how about if I frame it like this? When Home for Good started, around 15,000 kids were needing a home. Do you know what? There are around 15,000 churches. It's quite simple maths, isn't it, really? So I'm encouraging people into fostering and adoption. I'm supporting those that do so. 
and I'm working with churches and key figures to understand the need and to create environments like this so we can stand up and say that fostering and adoption families are loved and they are supported in their church. And I really believe that the church has got so much to say here and that a group of people who look at a kid who believes that they are worthless can start the job of rebuilding and reminding them of their worth. Do you know what that means to a kid from one of these backgrounds? It can change everything. Do you think that Jesus in the Christmas story is showing us the divine is in amongst the vulnerable? So as a bloke, I can share that to be a dad to someone who doesn't have one, to be a guiding voice, a steady hand, a voice of encouragement rather than fear, it really is the ultimate pleasure to have a sceptical young person accept you as their father figure. You see, there are so many kids who are orphans of a dad and a mum who can give them what they need. You know, I'm going to give you some statistics just as I kind of come into land. These are quite important. These are some of the statistics for kids leaving the care system in the UK. 22% of female care leavers become teenage parents. 24% of the adult prison population are care leavers. 11% of homeless young leavers, young people are care leavers. 33% of sex workers have been in care. And 38% of care leavers are not in education, training or employment. You know what these numbers tell me? They've never found a home where they are loved and accepted. They tell me that the chances are they haven't found that rock of someone they can call mum and dad and seize them as their kid. As I've said, I'm not saying this is the easiest life. In fact, far from it. It might be the case that this could be the most difficult thing you ever do. I'm not dressing it up. Helping someone who has been hurt in some of these ways It can push you to the edge, but I want to say this. It is worth it. You see, this is about helping someone rediscover who they were always meant to be. This is about helping someone discover their identity and family. This is about being a home for good. You know, a lot of you guys are really young and you're figuring out the next steps in your life um, or maybe what family is going to look like in the future. Well, I'm going to challenge you. Maybe you stepping into the gap for a vulnerable kid could be exactly what God is calling you into. Maybe you are being called to adopt rather than have your own children. I don't know. But I'd like to kind of plant that seed in your head at the moment based on all the things I've just said. There's something to start praying about. But you know what? I'm going to finish with this. Every couple of days I get a message from Lisa even though we've got another foster daughter who lives with us now, and she, uh, she comes around periodically, and we, and we meet up in town. She's in Bath. She asks me about my day, and we talk about our plans. My kids see her, and she's still got problems. And there is a ton of stuff that she does that still makes me roll my eyes. But I'll tell you what. She calls me dad. Here's a picture of her with my kids. She's the one in the middle. I'd love to chat to you afterwards if you want to. I've got some stuff out the back. But just thanks for having me. I pray that you've been challenged and encouraged.